And I don't want the world to see me because I don't think that they'd understand. When everything's made to be broken, I just want you to know who I am. That's, that's like the Goo Goo Dolls, City of Angels version, but we're going to talk about a much better version of that same sentiment. We're talking about Vim Vendor's 1980s classic, Wings of Desire. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. I dig this movie. I'm Keir Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who's wondering, Austin, would you give up mortality, immortality, sorry, to uh, to come hang out with me? Hey, and I'm Austin Hayden Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know, man, Peter Falk looked like he was having a good time. He got to be an actor and shit. So yeah, man. I'm just upset that you stole my whole like uh, Goo Goo Dolls thing, because that was going to be my my... <laughs> what I was going to come in with, and then, you know, you just... I I, I couldn't do it now, because you fucking ripped it off and went into my brain, and you stole it. I, that song just had such an important moment in my world when I was a teenager. Well, it's, so... It's so weird, because even though I'm watching this black and white, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, art film, I still, no matter what, like, like when they're talking at the bar at the end, I still kind of started <laughs> humming... And I don't want the world to see, because I, I don't think that they'd understand. You know what? I, I, there were times when I was watching it this time where I was sort of in my mind transplanting Nick Cage and Meg Ryan into those roles, you know, and kind of like, because I haven't seen City of Angels in, what, 15 years or something like that, and 20 years maybe, but I, I so I have, I have like the trailer in my mind and I have little bits in my mind that I can remember. And, uh, and so for some reason when, you know, I'm looking at these other actors on the screen, I was still able to kind of flash back and, and just quick little fabricated images of, uh, of city of angels. So it's kind of funny. Manchmal wird mir meine ewige Geistesexistenz zu viel. Ich möchte dann nicht mehr so ewig drüber schweben. Ich möchte ein Gewicht an mir spüren, das die Grenzenlosigkeit an mir aufhebt und mich erdfest macht. Ich kann den Potsdamer Platz nicht finden. Ganz andere Flügel werden mir wachsen als die gewohnten. Flügel über die ich endlich werde staunen können. Hey, was ist das Columbo? Nee, glaube ich nicht. I can't see you, but I know you're here. All right, so Wings of Desire tells the story um, primarily revolving around one angel, although there are uh, a couple of angels, but it's uh, one angel. And he is basically floating around Earth, observing humanity and listening to their thoughts, their frustrations. He's in post-World War II Berlin uh, on the western side. And he's listening to the frustrations and everything that sort of has come in the wake of the ruination of Berlin post-World War II. 
and as he is encountering them, he begins to desire to want to become human, to want to touch, to want to drink a cup of coffee, to want to have someone step on his foot and apologize. The customs and the sensations of human life, the things that an angelic being who doesn't experience time, who doesn't experience urgency, who doesn't experience frustration or sense or the weight of a rock or anything like that, uh, that he is kind of foreclosed from. So he begins to desire those things, and in particular, he gravitates towards a trapeze artist, uh, one woman, Marion, who um, he begins to uh, become infatuated with, and you might say that he falls in love with her. And um, because of this, he decides to give up immortality to become human. But along the way, a bunch of other things happen. As I said, there's another angel uh, who I believe his name was Cassio, and, or maybe, no, maybe that's his name, right? God damn it, I could never remember. Yeah, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty sure. No, wait. Cass, I thought Cassio was the. He was the ginger one. Yeah, the ginger one. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then his name is what again? Dam, Damiel. Yeah. Damiel? 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 Yeah, Damiel. So uh, Damiel is the main character, Angel, and Cassiel is the uh, buddy. And uh, along the way, Damiel and Cassiel encounter other humans and kind of latch on to these humans and these humans uh, are very at, at different stages or um, po points in their lives I guess we could say there's an older gentleman and um, who spends a lot of time at the library and reminiscing about history in the past and about his old experiences and then there's funnily enough who I, I actually really love him because I think he kind of brings a little bit of comic relief to this as well but Peter Falk is in this doing his Playing himself, <laughs> well, an angelic, a fallen angelic version of himself, which is a, a sort of plot twist, I, I guess, at the end. It turns out that he actually is uh, somebody else who forsake immortality uh, as an angelic being to become a human. And, and maybe, I guess, we would say he forsook it so that he be could become an actor. Um, I think there's some meta stuff going on here that I'd like to get into as well. But I think maybe that's part of it is that Peter Falk, you know, he kind of gives up, if you will, um, immortality to maybe become an actor, uh, regardless if that's the interpretation or not. He is uh, a former angel. And then um, there is, you know, a young man who commits suicide, um, which was an interesting scene because he's actually on top of the Mercedes building, which is sort of a sign of technological progress, obviously, post-World War II. And um, uh, various other individuals that are struggling with the dissatisfactions, I would say, of what it means to be human. But yet, uh, when... Damiel comes into Earth, uh, he is overcome by the joys of color and taste and a hot cup of black coffee, and um, of course there's still a frustration and a need and a lack that he has because he has fallen in love with this woman, this trapeze artist, and he is seeking her, and then even though this doesn't take up the bulk of time, it's really only the last 20 minutes when he becomes, or maybe the last 30 minutes when he becomes human, let's say, it's about him trying to pursue what it means to really be human, to become fully human. And of course, then he finds uh, her at the end and he becomes fully human in connecting with her, in creating the sort of love and romantic moment with her. And at that moment, he is tapped into the sort of universality of what it means to be common and human and everything. And he has this love relationship with this woman. Um, yeah. And that's pretty much the plot of the film. Kier, what do you think of Wings of Desire? And I, I saw this film once before in um in when i was in uh when i was studying film and 
I remember being severely bored by it. So <laughs> it was interesting to go back and watch it again, possibly with a slightly more sophisticated view. Um, and I'd say it's a film I appreciate and I like it. I'm not sure how into it I am. I'm, I think it would... I would be surprised if I decided to sit and watch the whole thing again. Okay. Um, which was, but it, it was, it was interesting because it's, I felt like I had this kind of really roundabout, you know, vibe with this film this time because, so I, I watched this and I sort of had this, I was talking to my mom on the phone and I was sort of saying how we were watching this film and that, um, yeah, my mom is a big fan of Paris, Texas, which I've never watched. So I I was on the BFI player for it, and I noticed that they also had Paris, Texas. So I thought, okay, well, you know what? Maybe I need to give another Wim Wenders film a try because I've never really sat down and gone through Wim Wenders film. So I watched Paris, Texas, and I loved Paris, Texas. Um, and then I ended up watching another film of his called um, The American Friend, with uh, which also has Bruno Ganz and uh, has Dennis Hopper in it, which is an adaption of um, one of the, the Ripley books. And again, really liked that. And so it was kind of, and then weirdly, out of morbid curiosity, also watched about 30 to 40 minutes of City of Angels. <laughs> and while I think it's... A obviously not as sophisticated a film as Wings of Desire. I wasn't bored. Is I still it's 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 almost its earnestness is almost kind of charming. You know, it's 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 not as bad as people like to make out. I kind of think so. It was like so. It's this weird thing where I ended up watching all of these films around wings of desire and so it's this <laughs> weird thing where now i'm coming back and having to like be like okay here's the actual film that i was meant to watch mm. um yeah i mean i think i think part of it is that it's it's interesting because there's this very quite loose um narrative for most of the film right and i think i became much more engaged during the point after the point where he becomes mortal um, I think I found a lot of the sort of, um, him wandering around listening to people's poetic thoughts a bit tedious. And it was that weird thing where I was sitting there going like, this is what the stereotype of European art films are like here. Like when you watch, um, when, when people go to that, it's like, I always think of like the bit in the, the fighter where he takes her to the art film because, you know, he's embarrassed <laughs> oh, that right. he lost and he wants to go to a place where nobody knows him. And then Amy Adams comes out and they go, she goes like, there wasn't even any good sex in that film. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. it's like, I, this is the type of film I think they're watching. Um, and it's like, and, and I don't want to be dismissive of it because I actually genuinely think it's, it's a really good movie. It's just, it's my, the, the level of preference and my engagement that are coming out in it. Mm, but, sure. um, yeah, I mean, I, I would be lying if I said I was like really into this movie, but I, I certainly thought it was interesting and kind of, it's seems worthy of its reputation. Mm. Okay. Well, I mean, obviously cards on the table. I, I fucking love this movie. 
but let's this, this movie's got austin all the fuck all over it because it's it it manages it it hits you on a philosophical level it hits you on it's got an arty formalist quality to it and then also it's about fucking religious shit as well so it's like it's it's like a trifecta oh. of of chin, chin strokey austin shit but add the fourth element which is that there is a really sexy beautiful woman that he has this intense, passionate, romantic connection with. I mean, this movie sings to my soul. Um, but beyond that, beyond going into, like, because obviously I chose this film. Um, so beyond just that level of enjoyment, I think that there's some really interesting things about the sequence that you don't love as much. And I want I wrote a couple of them down, and I, I wanted to just kind of talk. So... When he is, for example, listening to people's thoughts, there's this one sequence when he first encounters Marion in her and he and he kind of follows her back to her trailer. And there's this amazing like overlay of audio where What you mean when he's being a bit of a peeper? He's been being a bit of a peeper. Yeah, he's he's definitely being a voyeur, as they uh say in the porn world. I'm just saying, I think maybe in the Me Too era, can we really excuse uh, you know, these angels coming in and taking advantage of young women. You know what's funny? Dude? You know what else I thought? Like, I won't get sidetracked, but you know what else I thought? At the very end, he talks about the sort of um, the universal connection of what it means to be human because it's man and woman. I actually, I thought about that. I was like, I wonder if you were LGBT, part of the LGBTQ community, would you in some way find this to be a, like, not that you would think it was shit. You would understand it in its context, but that you would find it to be inherently limited because the universal that he espouses is the universal connection between man and woman. That, like that's the truth of being human that allows him to become human. And it isn't that I had – That's so funny. I thought the exact same Did thing. You? Yeah. Because he's not yeah. saying like I had connection with another. It's that I tapped into that sort of immortal – truth of what it means to be human that i am man and you are woman and that's that's it and so i did wonder if there's I think a little he's also he's alluding to a kind of classical concept as well i mean yeah. it's not in the sense of what he's saying is i you know I, the universal truth of man and woman but not you fucking gays fuck off <laughs> right you know he's not saying that no. it's just it's that thing of like this is a a classical idea which we've come to question more within modern societies we've been more open about uh different forms of sexuality but i don't think it's 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 not meant to be exclusionary it just kind of by proxy ends up being exclusionary yeah and i thought that was really interesting i wonder like i wonder if you were a sort of gay art critic or film critic or, or or just someone who watched this film and had kind of a perceptive eye to that sort of thing i i wonder how you would interpret it like like you said it's not intentional and so i don't think it's I don't think it's like nefarious and I don't think it's exclusionary, but at the same time, it kind of by default is a little bit exclusionary. Um, and so anyway, I interrupted you. Go go back to your original point. So when he's being a voyeur and he's in her trailer and she's um, – I thought there was this really lovely – just from a, a sort of technical perspective, this really lovely way that uh, she – because you know, he's listening to all these people's different thoughts. And she's kind of like going off poetically about her frustrations. And then she puts on a Nick Cave album, which I thought was kind of a nice touch that he kind of consistently comes up throughout the film as well. You know, he's got his posters around Berlin. And then, of course, it culminates in the concert at the end. And she puts on the record and her thoughts are still going. She's kind of like, you know, meandering stream of consciousness shit. 
And then she starts to hum to the song and sing along the words of the song, but also continuing her internal monologue. And he's listening to all of this, but you can hear the difference because uh, it's not perfectly symmetrical with Nick Cave's vocals and then her singing along like you do when you're singing along to an album. And then, of course, her thoughts are still going on top of that. And I thought that was really interesting. And I I was like thinking, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I do that too. Like when you know a song so well, you can just sing the words in your head, but your mind can still be thinking about, I don't know, what you've got going on and what, what your to-do list is. And I don't know, you could even be writing an email or something like that. And I really thought that, that was a really lovely technical flourish and there were things like that spread throughout that I really that I really liked the weaving of color shots every once in a while in the midst of the black and white before it goes full color at the end um I I thought that it was kind of really like the use of dissolve I think in between things because it kind of gives this notion of temporality I think time is one of those really important concepts that you know obviously angels they don't experience time and so he wants to experience time and maybe time has something to do with ruination and frustration and all of these other themes that he's trying to explore and so I thought from a technical perspective even in that sequence that you don't like as much in the film I thought there was some really interesting stuff to to latch on to you know which is the sequence I don't like? Oh, before he becomes human. Oh, not that, uh, not that you don't sorry. like it, but that you didn't like it as much. Yeah, I was. I it you know it it's interesting because part of it was it's that it's that thing sometimes that I really encounter with art cinema, which is that thing of like if I really wanted to sit here and unpick these things, I'm sure I could find stuff interesting within it but it's just like it's sending me a whole bunch it's because obviously you're you're listening to all of these people giving off these kind of poetic thoughts and there's a kind of element to it where it's kind of somewhat abstract in nature so there's this point where i feel like there's a lot of potential room and density to the things that are being said and to the people that are being portrayed but it's that thing where it's just like i end up kind of feeling like i'm just too lazy to do that it's just i'm not really like it's like it's like, and maybe that that's bad, but kind of part of part of me mm. does end up coming back and being like, you know what, movie? You tell me what you think, okay? Don't 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 give it to me to figure out. You tell me what you think, but you know. But anyway, I, but that's also that's because I, I don't want to sound aggressive towards this film because I actually, you know, again, I appreciate it quite a lot. Um, so actually, the thing I'd be very interested in talking about, and I don't want to know if you want to jump to this already or whether you want to keep sort of going down what your notes, but I, no, I'd cool. really like to talk about um, the idea of of color versus black and white as a kind of um, formalist narrative device because it's quite interesting because there's a there's a, a long history of, of this being done. So I'm, I'm curious whether you want to keep going down what you're talking about or whether you want to jump to that. Yeah, let's jump around. Look, that's perfect because I actually want to ask you something. About this, this okay, is this um, is one of my. What do you ask me? This is one of my notes. Is there what what is going on? Like obviously at the at the end when he becomes human and he goes into color and it goes into color. That that's a, the clear. That's the sort of like Wizard of Oz moment, right? Two different worlds. That's fine. That makes sense. What what is going on with like the flashes before? Is that where he's getting a taste of? What a- no, I think it's I think the difference is that when you see color before he becomes human, it's actually a transition because the black and white is always the angel's perspective. But when they're in color, you'll notice they no longer you no longer hear their thoughts. You're watching the human perspective at that point. Mm. So that's why you get the color because it's a transition into the human perspective. Mm. Interesting. D- um okay. 
Okay, cool. So what? But it's also yeah. interesting because you feel one of the things that I think is very interesting, and actually why I think as a formalist thing it's really fascinating, is because I think it does a great element to which it's a perspective shift. Because even though the angels are in the same room with these people and they're listening to their thoughts, and in theory they know. You would think that would mean they would know everything about them. Mm. It feels like when you go into color, the angels are no longer in the room. You can't see them anymore. And you can't hear the human's thought. It's weird because you actually feel like the angel, this is the perspective the angels can't see. Mm. You feel like actually the angels can't really see what's going on right at this moment in time. And there's something very, very clever, I think, about that. Because if you look at the history of this kind of black and white to color thing, um, it's something that's been used, say, again, like in The Wizard of Oz, and this idea of coming into this sort of vibrant world of kind of like lush, you know, sort of beauty. But then you have things, again, you have um, a matter of life and death, um, the Powell Pressburger um, film, uh, the Powell Pressburger film, um, where uh, it sort of represents coming into this sort of uh, the, 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 the sort of the afterlife. But then you also have things like, say, um, about 10 years later from this film, you have something like Pleasantville, where mm, yeah. color represents this dawning of reality. Um, and I think there's something really, really fascinating in how people perceive color as opposed to black and white, and how black and white is seen as this much more distanced, more... Um, more austere look to it and then color represents this kind of this this truth this vibrancy this reality which is really interesting and i say this because i've given a lot of thought to this because my recent short film does the exact same thing where the mm-hmm. idea is that black and white represents the the sort of the constructed world of uh, a sort of sexual predator and then the color represents the truth when the victims are able to speak out um so i think i can't i can't wait till you finish a draft that sounds fucking rad man you gotta send that shit to me soon but i think and and so i mean i'm 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 sounding very rambling in my my ideas here but i i think again i think the way that the film uses that color in a way to sort of show this idea of a certain kind of vibrancy of reality the fact that the angel's world is actually very tactile and and bland and straightforward and there's not a lot of um there's 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 no there's no real feeling to it it's it's very interesting and actually i think the black and white often seems very flat because a lot of times when you shoot black and white you use sort of very heavy lighting to get this sort of this very high sort of contrasty look to it something that if you look at it lighting that in color doesn't look as nice because it sort of makes the whites look really off but here, all the black and white has quite a flat look to it, yeah. which I think is quite interesting, you know especially when, I... when you look at, say, compare it to, say, something like Paris, Texas, where Paris, Texas has a much more contrasty look to it with a lot of kind of more stylized lighting. I, I really noticed that when Marion's uh, face is lit up in color for the first time because she's actually more gorgeous in color which usually people use black and white to hide blemishes and to use dramatic uh, shade or shadowing to kind of intensify angles. But actually, she's more striking by far, I thought, in color. I mean, she's a beautiful woman, right? Like, like it's, it's clear why he gives up immortality for her. Um, but beyond that, just like prima facie, on the face of it, she 
she does look there's a depth that's missing in the way that he's shot this black and white even um on on people's portraits in, in their faces that comes to life uh in color and i wonder how you do that because um i'm trying to like like a film like nebraska is a black and white film but it's a film but it's a digital black and white film and so it does have a little bit more of a a richness to its black and white. It's like the black and white that I'm talking about, that people try to use on Instagram to hide their blemishes or that actors get headshots or that models use in like moody perfume ads or whatever so that it can um, cover up blemishes but also present some sort of uh, some sort of tension or tone. Um, how, how, how do you do that? Is it just simply lighting or is it film stock or what is it? Is it happenstance? Yeah. I mean, my my honest thing is I don't know enough about how you say necessarily shoot on celluloid in order to get, you know, various effects. I mean, my feeling is that when you look at the photography in here, like, I mean, especially also reading up about the production, it was very much a kind of like suck it and see type sort of production where okay. it was kind of like on the daily, they were changing things up and deciding as they went. I mean, apparently... Wim Wenders made this film because he was he just had this really big desire to make a film about Berlin. He had kind of been living in the United States for uh, an extended period of time and then had come back to Berlin and just sort of really wanted to do something about Berlin. And in fact, the film in German is called uh, Der Hummel über Berlin, uh, the heaven over Berlin. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think... I think what you kind of see is actually more a result of the filmmakers shooting things on the fly as they go. And one of the interesting things when I was reading about Paris, Texas, is it was kind of like the beginning of um, Wenders kind of throwing out storyboards and being much more sort of shooting in an intuitive way and wanting to kind of just uh, find moments and find things as they went. And that feels a little bit more what this film is. This film is more um, him sort of finding stuff he likes, and you kind of feel like he's he's gone around Berlin. He's like, I like this spot. We'll, we'll film a bit here. Um, apparently, they had sort of meetings um, each evening to sort of discuss what they would do the next day. Mm. Um, you know, it was fairly low budget and i think they just kind of it, it was a it was a film that kind of came out of process and certainly um the editor said because of course a lot of this film was filmed without obviously the voiceover narrations or anything so the the the, the editor said it was practically a silent film when he first uh st edited it because they hadn't done the voiceover yet mm. um so and i think i think there's a there's something that's kind of interesting in that, that the film is kind of so much a character of Berlin. Yes. And, and I think because of that, because it's a lot about kind of just finding these, using these found spaces, um, I think they're working an awful lot with kind of just um, natural or, you know, sort of a practical light in the mm. spaces, which inevitably is not going to create the same sort of contrasty look that you kind of, often see in black and white in fact the one place that you kind of see that kind of lighting is when they're on the film set um <laughs> with peter falk mm. so it's a it's interesting i think how that ends up working 
on a formalist level, whether it's intentional or not is another debate and somewhat irrelevant. Mm. But I think it, it, it creates a nice, quite, like I said, quite flat look to the black and white. Yeah. You know what? Do you ever watch, um, you ever watch those YouTube videos of people that, that are colorblind and they get those colorblind sunglasses? You know what I'm talking about? Um, no. No, no, no. So, yeah, I've, well, I've heard of this. This is like if you're colorblind, there's like sunglasses that can allow you to see colors. Yeah, I mean, or, or it's like if you've ever listened to or if you've ever seen a video of like like a baby, like a little baby that has really bad vision and they give it glasses and you see that like its look on its eyes or um, someone getting a co- cochlear implant and they can hear sound for the first time and they just are overcome and they break down. Well, I, I, I love to watch these kinds of things and there's – there's well, well, then maybe you should watch – the movie At First Sight, starring your man crush Val Kilmer. <laughs> I should. Um, is that the one with a movie that literally nobody has mentioned since it came out? In like, I think it was like ninety nine. Is or like Mira Sorvino or, or Charlize Theron or something. Mira Sorvino is in that. <laughs> yeah, dude, I remember that film. <laughs> oh Jesus. Um, but but I, I love this idea of, and this is a very Christian. Uh, well, religious metaphor, but definitely a Christian, you know, the, the Christian metaphor of like the scales have fallen off your eyes or Paul on the road to Damascus. You know, I was blind, but now I see, or you only see through a glass darkly now, but you'll see clearly later or something along those lines. So this film uses it formally speaking, but it really serves the narrative as well. And and you kind of hinted at something and I wanted to ask you about this because I, I thought this as well, that the angel um, Damiel, he gives up immortality and the idea is, is that he has like pure knowledge, quote unquote, like rational knowledge. He knows everything about – like there's this one point where he, when he finally becomes human and this little kid asks for directions. And he's like, you go this way and you go that way and you go this way and then you go this way, this way. Blah, blah. And the kid is like, oh my god, you know, because he's so excited that he's able to apply this knowledge now. Like he has all the head knowledge and now he's going to understand how to do it by actually being in the world. And that's part of the reason that he seeks after Marion is he is he believes that she will help him to finally understand this knowledge. There's a difference for him between information and understanding or comprehension or wisdom, we might even say in philosophical terms. But um, there's a really interesting like philosophical experiment and I can't remember how they frame it because it's a, it's like the girl it, – it's like a girl's name. But it's like if there – it's a thought experiment. It's like if there's a woman in a room, a girl in a room and she's raised in this room her entire life and she's never seen the outside world and she's fed all knowledge. Um, when, if she leaves the room and goes out into the real world, will she actually learn anything new by experiencing it or is it possible conceivably to learn everything you can about – for example, a tree without looking at a tree or without ever seeing a picture of a tree or without touching bark. Like, can you learn everything about a cup of coffee without actually sipping a cup of coffee? And I thought there was something really interesting in how the film does this kind of thing. It's like he has all the knowledge, but yet he still learns something when he comes down to earth. And he thinks that that's going to somehow complete him because the weird thing is, is that he's he's actually dissatisfied as an angel. But then what I wonder is, and you mentioned this in – and this is why I was going to say I don't know if you kind of like were hinting at this or if I just kind of picked up on something. That when he falls and it goes to color and you can't hear the thoughts anymore, he also then loses. He He's cut off from that access that he previously had before. And so there is a genuine sense in which he's gaining the world but he is also losing access and that previously he was kind of – cut off or that, that he had access to before but that he was cut off from the world. And so there's this sense in which there's a give and take on both ends here that I thought was really 
explored nicely by the black and white in the color. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think I think there's a there's an interesting idea at the heart of that too about um cuz uh, again I the way I, I you if, if for an easy kind of parallel that I could come up with is that I I speak to a lot of people who are sort of enamored by the United States. Yes. And you know they but what they are enamored with is what they perceive of as the United States through media or through what they've consumed about it. You know. And that's that funny thing of like you're 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 talking to people who are very engaged with this idea of what they think of as this classical idea of America. But you know, as somebody who grew up in Santa Fe, I don't think their idea of the United States has anything to do with what I experienced living in the United States because Santa Fe is a kind of is kind of its own place. It's got its own mm. idiosyncratic vibe to it. I mean, growing up in Laguna Beach, you're probably closer to what a lot of people think of as the sort of more classical idea of the United States. But, you know, it's 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 interesting. Yeah, it's like New York and Hollywood of... are what they think of. Yeah. Or or the South um, or, or like mean, Texas. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. So it's like the it's like that thing of kind of you 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 sort of say I can explain to you what being in going to Santa Fe is like, but it won't ever really replace the experience of being in Santa Fe. Um and I think that's true with so many things and I think that's the interesting idea at the heart of this is that you can and I think there's something interesting in this idea, too, that the angels, obviously, they spend so much of their time around human beings and sort of listening to human beings. But ultimately, and I think that's why the shift to color where you can see the human perspective and the it feels so alienating from the angels perspective is really interesting because I think it really creates this real visual idea of how these angels ultimately can't really ever understand humanity until they become part of it. It's also interesting that that the thoughts that they're perceiving aren't happy thoughts. They're all thoughts of longing and thoughts of desire. It's not, oh my gosh, this... I mean, maybe with the children, the children, they get a little bit of play and enthusiasm, and that's probably what draws Damiel more than anything, is that childlike wonder that he wants to experience, that he believes persists even through adulthood. Um, but he, you know, there's that... Yeah, go ahead. I think the interesting thing, too, is that because what we get actually is we don't get like, oh, shit, I forgot to close the refrigerator door or <laughs> oh, I need to buy milk today. So what we get is these kind of poetic sort of existential thoughts that people are kind of dealing with. It's like and I, I it's it's not very literal what a lot of the mm -hmm. people what's on a lot of the people's mind. It's a, these sort of poetic musings, which, um, you know. It was inevitable. I've got to bring it back to this. But that's, of course, one of the things that uh, when you watch City of Angels and what it is as a it, – it, it's a sort of fascinating curio um, in, in so many ways is that, um, of course, all of these things become very literal. Suddenly the mm -hmm. thoughts on people's minds become these very literal, oh, I feel sad and I don't know why, you know, kind of things where you're, you're like – it's like that thing of like – I, I, I think there's an element to which when the angels are listening to people's thoughts, it's hard for them to totally understand it because it's a lot about people's existential 
problems and their fears and their issues, but they're addressed in this kind of way that's that's guarded through this kind of almost poetic language where you kind of feel like once again, you know, if you're an angel and you don't really have an understanding of like, you know, emotion and kind of like experience, poetry is the sort of thing that's going to keep you at a kind of arm's distance. So it feels like another way Mm. in which they're kind of kept at an arm's length from humanity. Yeah. They kind of romanticize this longing. And I think that's, I think that's actually troublesome for Damiel because he is erecting a fantasy about what life is going to be like in Berlin. But what I see from the Berlin that 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 Vim Vendors has presented is a Berlin in tatters. It's a Berlin in the wake of the destruction of Nazism. You know, there's that bit where the old guy is walking around talking about how there was this one plaza, and then, of course, the flags came up. And when the flags came up, the government was mean, and the police were mean, and the people changed. But he remembers what it was like before Nazism, and it wasn't like that. He used to spend time at this cafe, and um, things were different. And so he, he he kind of charts this transition from pre-Nazi Germany to Nazi Germany to now post-ruined uh, Nazi Germany, West Germany, uh, in Berlin. And it's... I think that you kind of get this weird um not weird you get this you get this particular uh conceptual framing of what Berlin is like in particular but what Germany is like after World War II and it's not a happy one and I think that's maybe what Vinders is trying to get across that maybe that's his experience of some of the things that you struggle with as an in your identity there's this one really lovely 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 scene um, where the angel, the other angel, um, is uh, in a car on the way to, I think, the movie set where we first meet Peter Falk on set anyway. And he's talking about these people, they used to kind of be existing in, together, but now they're all just these individuals kind of like their own states. And they have their own flags with their own passwords for entry, but nobody knows what each other's passwords are. And so you're always barred from entry into the other person's state. And so it sets up this really bleak picture of what life is like in Germany. It's people are isolated. Um, they can't really have like any sort of genuine togetherness. And then at the same time, the country itself is in ruins. And here we are trying to put the pieces back together, but we can't. And then I think the answer for vendors is that the way that you put the pieces back together is finding your lover, is finding the universal humanity and the commonality that is there. And I think that's what we get with the connection at the end with Damiel and, and Marion. But it's definitely not a happy picture of, of humanity. It's a very bleak – I mean we might even say it's those damn Germans are always so serious and you know angry and austere. But it is definitely that kind of picture of, of humanity with even like more sort of dour and nihilistic undertones to it. Um, oh, I mean – Here's um here's the interesting thing. have you have you ever been to Berlin? No, no, no. I had a couple chances and I really want to because everyone tells me that I would love it. Berlin's interesting because it's I feel like the film does really capture this kind of atmosphere that Berlin has. Because I mean, taking a walking tour of Berlin is quite fascinating because it is a city that so much has happened in the last one hundred years and you feel that history and it feels very vital and immediate and real 
because of course you're still looking i mean again like um the film starts off with him standing on top of that uh the the church where you can still see how the roof was bombed out of it because that's the thing is like so much of berlin has been rebuilt in the last since since world war ii because it just got the absolute shit bombed out of it at the end of world war ii um so it kind of got it, it kind of got completely just pushed into rubble. And then of course now, then you have the kind of whole interesting arms race thing going with the, uh, with um, the Americans and the Russians over the course of the cold war. And there was this very big attention to this idea of the Americans want to help fund and push like religious iconography um, as a way of sort of saying, fuck you to the Russians. And the Russians wanted to build these kind of like functional big odes to kind of um, how, to, to, to industrial power. Um, and so it's, it's this kind of strange hodgepodge of kind of styles and ideas. And meanwhile, you have all of this kind of graffiti and it feels like a very political city. It feels like there's, there's a lot of stuff going on underground underneath the surface. And mm. I think that's again, something that you, I think the thing that's interesting is the film is not seeking to capture Berlin and make it look beautiful. It wants to make it look um, rich. And I think that's uh, rich is in full detail, yeah. atmosphere, you know, concept. And I think that's what's and I, and I think that's what's really interesting. And again, it's one of the reasons why I find it's hard to think of how you necessarily remake this film in another <laughs> city because it feels so intrinsically tied to to this character of Berlin. I mean, I'm sure you could, you could do different things with it, but I mean, I, I think the idea that, you know, the, the atmosphere and the, the, the landscape feels right for people having these kind of existential crises of, of identity and what it, what it, you know, who they are. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen the city that's kind of struggling with this idea of what identity it has yes. at that point, because at that point it still has the wall. Right. You know, it's and it's, you know, the funny thing I didn't realize until I went there, crazy enough, I think I always kind of pictured like East and West Berlin as, oh, it was just like that point in the country where there was just part of a big long border. And then you go there and you realize, no, West Berlin was just this one spot in East Germany that basically the Allies were had just kind of taken over and held. And so you look at a map and you just see this kind of like little part of West Germany mm -hmm. that's completely that's completely circled by East Germany. And you're just like, that's just fucking crazy that that existed. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it almost makes me like I haven't seen City of Angels in, like I said, a very long time. I saw it when I was a teenager. And it, it almost makes me think that if you take that out of it, then you lose what makes this film what it is, which is fine. Then City of Angels is, it's not a remake, it's its own thing, which is fine. But it makes me think that, okay, so if you take it, and it's in New York, I, I think, yeah? City of Angels? Yeah. No, it's in LA. It's in LA? That's why it's called City of Angels. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because Los Angeles. Oh, geez, I don't know, man. All I remember is the dude is up on top of a building and looking down at one point. So I just kind of was like, it's got New York, right? Yeah. Okay. It's... Okay. It's interesting because City of Angels in so many ways feels like a 90s product. It's so 
you know, down to the fact that she's no longer a trapeze artist. She's now a doctor because, you know, we've got women's lib now. And we want, like, women to be their own thing, you know. It feels like a very kind of, like, we're not going to, like, make her some, like, pretty angelic thing. She's going to be... She's going to be Meg Ryan, but she's a doctor now. Right. I was going she's a surgeon. And, and I mean, it, it's, it's again, it's, it's weird because I think there's a very interesting idea in being able to transplant conceptually what Wings of Desire is doing to other cities, other locations. Because I think there's actually, LA is a weird city. I mean, you know this yourself. It is a strange city mm. that almost. It's very hard to think of another city like it because it is so disconnected and so filled with so many different people and areas. It's almost like a lot of little cities that have kind of been stuck together. Well, that's what it is. It, it wasn't designed to be the sprawl, the urban sprawl that it has become, which is why what's an, it, it's the transportation it's is town. terrible. It is an industry town. Industry town. It doesn't matter. It's, it's what yeah. it's what what Detroit is to cars, LA is to the film industry. And that's it doesn't it wouldn't exist without the film industry. Right, which is why so what I was going to say is that it, it actually my point is even more intensified because LA's history is so singular and so I would say um shallow and I don't mean that in like a moral sense, but I mean that in the sense that it's not very long um, and it is so singular because it is – it does center around the film industry. And so you lose one of the things that makes Wings of Desire so rich, which is the connection to time and the connection to history and the connection to transformation of uh, the human lifespan, which is from infancy to adulthood to death, which – the city of Berlin has gone through as well, right? It had an infancy and it had growing pangs and then it is now in a different phase and maybe it died and it's now got a rebirth and it's got like this this temporal experience that the city itself has. LA doesn't really have a rich one. Now, I know that I'm being a bit unfair to the city because of course it does and it has a lot of other things – outside of its time as an industry town, but the way that we understand LA as an industry town and the way that I would imagine it's portrayed in a film like City of Angels is simply as a background where this sentimental romantic story can play out and where it can sort of be a, uh, where it can try to aim at making claims about what it means to be human and stuff like that. But it's ultimately going to, it's really going to suffer because it can't deeply root itself into the history of the environment, the space that it's in, as well as a film like Wings of Desire. I mean, I'm I'm speculating because, like I said, I haven't seen City of Angels, but I imagine that would be, for me, one of the things that I would, if, if I watch these films in a double bill, that I would be very sensitive to, that it, that it lacks a little bit of that connectivity, that groundedness to the environment. Well, and I think, I think the, the main thing I want to say is that I think part of the problem is that I don't think that City of Angels is actually trying to use... Um, the film as a way of reckoning with L.A. Because I think the actual thing is, even though you're talking about the history, I do think that a lot of what um, Wings of Desire is reckoning with is the past 60, 70 years of Berlin history. I don't think it's really going pre-World War II. I think it's very much looking at the shadow of Berlin after World War II. Yeah. And I think L.A., there's a lot of room because a lot of shit's happened in L.A. Um, you know, obviously not in the same way as a war, but I think there's a lot that you could go into in terms of the, the, the strange history of L.A. Absolutely. There's a lot that potentially if you wanted to explore 
as the city through that kind of character, you know, sort of, you know, use the angels as a way of exploring the, the character of the city. I think there's a lot of room that you could do with it. I mean, somebody like, you know, James Elroy does fascinating things, you know, with L.A. as a kind of character does, within his books. Does he, um, um does Nick, do they go into like racial tensions and or like urban divisions and like Watts riots or any, any, does any of that stuff at all make an appearance in City of Angels? No, no, because but that's the thing is because what becomes front and center is the love story right. element of it, and it's because city City of Angels ultimately is a romantic melodrama, right. but Wings of Desire isn't really a romantic melodrama because you know uh, you know it's it's and this is not a criticism this is just an observation is that um, Marion is not much of a character. And I'm not even saying that as a way of kind of like disparaging it. I'm 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 saying that she's representative of something. She, in the yeah. same way that actually probably Damiel is also kind of representative. She's more of a of muse than anything. Yeah. Yeah. And so when those two get together at the end, it's not like I'm sitting there going like, oh my god, finally, I desperately wanted these two to find each other and fall <laughs> in love. It's like they represent an intellectual concept. They don't represent an emotional concept. And again, this is not a criticism. This is this is just the type of film it is. Right. Um, whereas what City of Angels wants you to do is get wrapped up in the romantic element, the longing, the tragedy. It wants to touch you on an emotional basis. So the interesting thing is that um, recently, of course, I think I've become very aware that this is this is the dichotomy of you and me. Is that I am often looking for an emotional touchstone in a film. I'm looking for a film to to touch me on an emotional level, whereas you are looking often for a film to touch you on an intellectual level. That is what you prioritize more than anything is the intellectual exercise of film, whereas I prioritize the emotional. And so I think that's the thing ultimately is why I can still probably watch something like City of Angels and be like, this isn't a good movie, but it's <laughs> kind of mildly interesting in certain ways because of what it's going for and i think there's an interesting idea in the fact that city of angels even though it's not successful is essentially trying to take what is an intellectual concept and bring it to a, and and bring it forward to an emotional one mm. um you know i it, it's it's strange too because i saw city of angels when i it was like one of these films that my parents rented and i watched it not knowing anything about i think i was like 12 when it came out and I, I watched it not knowing anything about what the film was. But something about this idea of angels kind of watching over us and having this these kind of strange, not in this sort of like angels in the outfield kind of cringy way, but being these kind of figures with sort of existential crises and sort of thoughts and kind of questions always... That something about that conceptually really stuck with me as a child. Mm. And so in that weird way, it's that stranger where I can't watch this film without somewhat seeing it through the prism of that first experience watching City of Angels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I saw City of Angels so first before I saw this film. So, yeah, yeah, which I think is probably quite a lot of people our generation probably will have seen City of Angels first, <laughs> which I'm sure there's some there's some art house people who are who, who absolutely hate that that's true. Yeah. But I, I think the funny thing is that it's like we get into this either or thing a mm. lot of times with film. And I think two things can exist and they don't cancel each other out. The fact that City of Angels exists does not cancel out Wings of Desire. Um, what about the shot for shot remake City of, of Angels Psycho. is a good movie here. I just want to say that. I'm just more saying it's an, I think there's something quite 
fascinating sometimes in the intellectual exercise of remake. What, what about the shot-for-shot shot remake of Psycho? We've we've brought this up plenty of times. I actually I've I've said many times that I think there's actually something really fascinating about <laughs> the intellectual exercise of remaking a film shot for shot and seeing if it still holds the same power. You know you know the book Quixote right by uh, Cervantes. Yeah. Uh, so there is a novella by uh, Jorge Luis Borges, who's a writer, and I can't remember what it's called, but it the main character it's about Pierre Menard, who's this author who literally makes a word-for-word remake of Quixote. And Borges' idea is like, is this a new thing? Is this something that is unique? Even though it's literally word-for-word, the story is identically the same. But nevertheless, Pierre Menard painstakingly wants to transcribe this literally word-for-word and then present it as a fresh work. And what's happening there? Is there something in this like repetition of the same thing? Is there some difference that still kind of comes through? And it's a, it's an interesting idea, you know? It, it, I, I do. Well, I mean, I, one of my favorite films yeah. of all time is a remake. Which one? So I mean, which it's, one? It's uh, the thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's a, it's a remake of uh, the thing from another world. Mm. Um, very different movie. But I mean, I think that's that's the interesting thing. And if I was going to mount a defense of City of Angels, I would say that <laughs> actually, if you watch the two back to back, which I did actually watch thirty minutes of City of Angels last I'm, night, I'm probably going to tonight um, when I go to bed. No, <laughs> yeah, it's such a different product ultimately from and in what it's striving for and what it's going for that. I think intellectually it could have been successful. I think it's a film that kind of fails because of some execution problems and because ultimately I think it could have used a more deft hand. But it's not without some interesting merit in terms of what it's going for. Um, and I think, again, if you watch them back to back, they are such different products that I'm, I am I think almost to say that it, it – you know, watching the two is almost a completely different exercise in terms of what you're going for, what you're looking for. Yeah. Um. What did you want to say about the actors real quick to wrap up? I think Bruno Gans has got a really fantastic face. <laughs> um, I think he's got this really fascinating just kind of because, of course, he doesn't say that much during the film. Mm-hmm. And I think especially with the type of film this is, is because in so many ways this represents exactly what I always complain about with what I call the sad bastard in the woods film where, you know, somebody just wanders around and looks at things and then ultimately at the end they find someone of the opposite sex and then the movie's, like, done. Um, but I think there's something there's something really interesting in the way that what Bruno Gans does with kind of his, his, his face acting, you know, there's, there's this mm. incredible amount of empathy um, that just radiates from him, especially when you consider like, you know, he's a, he, he's, he's not like he's a handsome man. He's a sort of slightly um, almost kind of, I don't know the best way to describe it, almost kind of brutish looking man. He's got very sort of chunky features yeah, and his hair's um, kind of... He's not what you would think of as an... Not he's, nice. He's and... not an angelic type Mm-mm. by any means. Um, and so, and I think there's something that's really kind of interesting about his face. And I think the film really utilizes it really well. And of course, the, th- the shame, I think, is that I think he was really fantastic in Downfall. And I think it's kind of a shame that it's mm. now just become so synonymous with that meme. But <laughs> right. I, you know, I, I just think he's every... I, he's someone who I've 
who pops up occasionally because most of his work was in sort of European cinema. So I, I see him much more sparingly than I might have other actors of his generation. Mm. And I, every time I see him, cause he's also in the American friend. I just always think he's, uh, he's fantastic. Um, Hey, you know, so yeah, no, I'm, I, you know, a lot of actors, yeah, go ahead. you know, a lot of actors, you know, like when I was a kid doing theater acting, the, the, the pinnacle of the, the roles that we would talk about are playing Jean Valjean or the Phantom. Do you think if you're German that you like grow up and you're like, I got to play Hitler one day and that's it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if people in Germany are desperate to play Hitler. But... I mean, I mean, no, I, I think I think there is a fascinating human quality that Bruno Ganz invests Hitler with in Downfall. I think Downfall is a really fantastic movie. Um and I think there's it's when you see him and how you watch he, he's there's this this element to which he is playing Hitler as as the myth and, and Hitler is trying to trying to radiate the myth of Hitler as this sort of grand leader and you watch it slowly fall away from him over the film and just he becomes this kind of pathetic mm. you know sort of just crippled human being and it's it's a I, I think I think it's 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 unfair that it's not given more attention than it is because I think he is really fantastic in it. And I think there's almost this kind of uh, cultural reaction to that to say that how dare you humanize Hitler in any kind of a way. But I think I think um, I, I think it as an exploration of the character of a tyrant, it's 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 quite fascinating. I think it does. It, I, I think also, it's a disservice to dehumanize Hitler. Like Wisecrack actually just did a really excellent video that got sadly demonetized by YouTube on what they call the Hitler industrial complex and how it is that, you know, the history channel and all of these other different media outlets are basically riding the Hitler hysteria all the way to the bank. But what that does is it turns Hitler into this like abstract monstrosity um, that just becomes the demarcation of evil. It becomes the standard of evil. And it's, it's almost too easy, right? It's um, it, it almost becomes too simplified when you do that. I think it's really important to not dehumanize somebody because it isn't that he's a monster. It's precisely that he's human. And and I also have to say that I just think Peter Falk is just like perfect in this movie. I think he's just like, especially since apparently Peter Falk just basically showed up not really knowing what the film was or what they were supposed to be doing, you know, and it was like, and but he's just so perfectly just hits this kind of level of just warmth and yes. you know kind of likability in this kind of in in fascinatingly stuff basically playing himself, um, which I I just you know I I think it, it it's this kind of great relief for me in the movie from all of this kind of like much heavier sort of thoughtful stuff is to just have him as this very sort of warm figure. And again, he's he he's the person who makes the the idea of of mortality this very um, exciting idea, and I think that's and I think he, I think it's it's a real credit to him as an actor that he communicates that so quickly and so well. Well, I think I think man, I think I think this is kind of one of those films that we can probably agree that we could probably spend three hours talking about and probably still not get to feel like we got to the um to the core of it. Um, you know, I think it. I think, you know, it's, it's, while it's not a film I particularly enjoyed and I can't particularly say I'd rush to watch it again, I am, you know, I would always recommend people give it a go. Mm. Whereas I would say 
I want to write a film essay about this movie. And then I want to and then I want to sit down with you and I want to have a cup of coffee and talk for hours about this and then get interrupted and we'll talk about the NBA playoffs and then come back to this and <laughs> you know which well, we've we've not we've not done our our coffee shop metaphor for a while. Yeah, exactly. So I figured I had to bring it back. Yeah. Okay, so next week we're going to be dealing with a very different type of black and white film. Um, as as Austin mentioned, I think maybe offhandedly mentioned earlier, unless I cut it out. Um, you know, we have been talking a little bit about the NBA playoffs, and so basketball season is on. And you know, I've been getting back into watching the NBA playoffs. I just I've had this real hankering to do a basketball movie now. The problem is, is it was a kind of long debate as to what basketball movie to do, you know, because there's quite a long list of films that I like about basketball. Um, the problem is I ended up rewatching a whole bunch of them recently. So it's kind of that thing where I, I've watched them and then I'm kind of like, well, I don't want to watch them again for the podcast. I'd rather just pick something I haven't rewatched recently. So that is how I arrived at a little film, you know, starring two titan actors of the early 90s i'm talking about as as said on the poster woody and wesley oh, the ultimate black and white basketball movie white men can't jump black and white how are you and then i was like oh yeah i got you uh, directed by <laughs> the king of sports movies ron shelton um i uh this is one of those films that uh you know i just sort of offhandedly caught on tv once and then you know ended up have rewatched probably about 50 times oh gosh i haven't seen it in a long time so it'll be fun to revisit but i feel like i've seen it enough in my life that it'll be kind of like a homecoming yes no definitely plus it's it's so la mm. and it's so early 90s which is like, which is my favorite era of basketball, really, is I love 90s basketball. Yeah, and you know what else it has? It has um, a person that I think is overlooked as a sex icon, but I got a thing for Rosie Perez, man. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, you're, you're a red-blooded male. Yeah, but she's overlooked. This is like, this is peak Rosie Perez before she took elocution lessons. But, yeah, exactly. Yes, which is, I think, makes her even hotter. So this is kind of, this my, yeah. my childhood, basketball and... Uh, sexy Latina woman like this film probably probably formed me as a human in more ways than I am even aware but um, anyway in the meantime if you want to check out our backlog of episodes go to idigthismovie.com uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes you can also uh, subscribe to us through various other places like CastBox uh, if you want to check out my work go to kiersaywood.com or you can follow me on Instagram at Breaking Point Flicks, Austin. You can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, or Instagram, AUS underscore H-A-Y. Okay, um, we will see you next week for White Men Can't Jump. Later. Can't jump.